Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. What is the function of pleasure in ethics and in the good life? Aristotle addresses this in Nicomachean Ethics, Book 10, by framing pleasure in terms of activities. And this is going to have a lot of important implications. One of the things that he starts with in discussing this is pointing out that pleasure itself is not what he calls a emotion, a kinesis, a process of change. Why? Because it is, as he says, perfect. And the word perfect there could mean its fullest, it's fulfilled. The word comes from the term that means antelos in Greek. So pleasure has its fullness, you might say, at each moment that it's being experienced. Now, this doesn't mean that pleasure doesn't admit of degrees, but when you have a particular degree of pleasure, you have that fullness of pleasure. It is genuinely pleasant. It's part of what Aristotle trying to get towards having us understand. Whereas emotion is something incomplete at every moment. He uses the example of walking, right? So I'm walking here, I'm walking there, there are certain points along the way. The walking is not complete at any given point unless we say that the completion consists in having walked, in which case the walking no longer exists. We can go on and on and further into depth with this, but I want to get through the rest of this. He also says that because pleasure is not itself a movement and is perfect at each moment that it exists, it's not simply a result of emotion or even a process of becoming, a process of coming into being. So what is pleasure then? He never actually comes out and tells us precisely what it is here in this discussion of Nicomachean Ethics, but he does correlate it with another important concept, and that is energia in Greek, which we translate by the term generally activity or action, sometimes function. So pleasure is going to be connected with activity. Pleasure arises out of activity. It's not something purely passive, the way that we often imagine it to be. Instead, it's going to arise sort of as a, a you, you could think of it here temporarily as a byproduct or as something additional, but, it, but it's really gonna be intrinsically connected with activities. So Aristotle starts out by considering the senses, right? Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, all these other aspects of touch that we lump under the, the sense of touch. And Aristotle says each sense, each faculty, right, the capacity for seeing, acts in relation to its object. It, it does something. It has a activity or a function. What's the object for, you know, visible things? Well, the, the chalkboard, the video that you're watching right now. That camera right there really only has two senses. It has a sense of sight. You're seeing me right now, and it has a sense of hearing because there's a microphone in the camera. Ticks, those awful little arthropods that, that we get stuck onto us, apparently they only have two senses. They can sense heat and they can sense motion or vibration rather, and that's what tells them to drop down onto something and to stick their little proboscis into us and start sucking the blood. Each of those senses has a determinate range of objects. If you think about what human beings can 
can see. You know, just watch some YouTube videos and you're gonna see some amazing stuff, right? And that's seeing something that a camera is mediating. Now go outside and like just look around. You know, you want panoramic vision? Just spin it, right? <laughs> now you've got your panoramic vision of, of things. Of course, you can't take it all in at once. But, you know, we can go on and on and on. Think about what your nose can differentiate. Now think about what a dog's nose can differentiate. Think about what your, your palate can differentiate. Human palate, pretty well developed. Think about all the things that go with touch, hardness, smoothness. We can go on and on and on about this, right? Every one of those has to do with what Aristotle's talking about here. Each sense acts in relation to its object, not just the thing that's being seen right now, but the seeable, the whole range of what can be seen. He says that it acts perfectly, and again, remember this word perfect does not mean the sense of perfect that we often have today, but it works to its fulfillment. It works to its full capacity. It works towards its goal, its end, when that sense is in good condition. So, you know, for example, right now, the camera that you're looking at me through is a blur because I need these glasses, right? There's something wrong with my sense of sight, which has to do primarily with those eyeballs that I'm using to mediate it. Kind of out of shape. The lenses aren't quite the way they're supposed to be. So I have to supplement it with this prosthesis of glasses that now I put on, and now everything's very clear, although not quite the same color, unfortunately, because these have a little bit of tint to them. So that, that's one example. You know, when, when you're sick, things don't taste the same way to you because your, your body probably needs different things, right? Or it's out of condition. When your sinuses are all clogged up, you can't smell much of anything, which also affects your sense of taste and might affect your sense of hearing if your tubes get blocked up. So when our senses are in good condition, then they act perfectly. We can take in what it is that they're providing us with, and then they produce a a certain determinate pleasure. This doesn't mean that they don't produce any pleasure when they're not working to full capacity, but the amount of pleasure that they can produce is dependent on what they're able to do. So, you know, for example, if you have damaged hearing like I do, too many concerts and wearing headphones turned up all the way when you're not supposed to and also not wearing my earplugs when I was in the army, there's some things that I cannot hear as well that other people can, which means that I won't be able to take the same amount of pleasure in them because my sense of hearing is not working as perfectly. The, the remedy for this, of course, is I just, you know, turn it up a little bit, right? But then that could produce a lack of pleasure for other people who want it turned down a bit. In any case, the, the general idea is that each sense, when it's acting in the way that it's supposed to, pleasure results from it. And Aristotle notes that each one of the senses and it's not just the senses, it's also other capacities of us. He has examples here of thought, dianoia, the intellect, the rational part of us, or contemplation, when we are literally being spectators, when we are contemplating something, there is a pleasure that goes along with that as well. So, you know, when you're good at, at doing mathematics and you think about a particular proof that's been, you know, elegantly worked out, there's a certain pleasure to that that is distinct from the pleasures of the senses that are also genuine pleasures. Now, Aristotle says that pleasure perfects the activity. 
Again, this sense of perfecting means to bring it to its fulfillment, to make it fully what it is supposed to be, to fully actualize it, we might say, in, in the contemporary language. So pleasure perfects an activity. When we're seeing and we derive pleasure from what we're seeing, um, that is making the activity fuller. It is making it better. Aristotle says that there's other ways in which the activity is also perfected, and pleasure is not doing that. So it doesn't perfect it as a hexis or a state or habit does, right? So when we're thinking, for example, about contemplation, pleasure does not perfect the activity in the way that the intellectual virtues do. And it doesn't perfect it in the way that the object does. How does the object perfect the activity? The object actually offers itself as something that can be seen, something that can be touched, something that can be smelled, something that can be thought, something that can be contemplated. It also doesn't perfect it in the way that the faculty does. The faculty engages itself in the activity, in the energia. So all of these are working together, and pleasure is one of the key elements or key components or dimensions, if you like, of the activity. Strip away pleasure from the activity, and it would no longer be totally what it is. This is a very interesting idea. The implication is that we're feeling a low grade of pleasure probably all the time that we're seeing, hearing, and that is directing us in a certain way. We can also feel much more pleasure, and then the activity itself is sort of like the icing on the cake. It doesn't make the cake, but it sure makes the cake better in many respects. It makes it taste better, of course, so there's a little self-referentiality here, right? Gives it a better mouthfeel, as, as we often say. Now, one of the things that Aristotle says to sort of close this discussion off that's very interesting is that we are not capable, we human beings, that's not to say all beings, of feeling the same pleasures indefinite. And why not? He says, how is it that no one can feel pleasure continuously? So he suggests, perhaps it's due to fatigue. No human faculty is capable of uninterrupted activity. Therefore, pleasure also is not continuous because it accompanies the activity of the faculties. We can't always be seeing, even if you pry our eyeballs open, sooner or later, we fall asleep, right? Although it's pretty hard to fall asleep when your eyeballs are pried open. You also lose focus after a while, you know? That's why if you've ever seen the movie, that Clockwork Orange, where they've got that guy in the chair and they've got his eyes splinted open, they're having to drop eyedroppers in just to try to keep him working with that. Smell is a great example. Something that stinks or something that smells great, about two minutes later, you really can't smell it much at all unless it's very, very strong because our, our odor receptors are not that powerful. Taste works in much the same way. Hearing, you could hear something continuously, but after a while, you'll stop paying attention to it. Just like when you put on music and you're really attending to it and then you lose your train of thought and then you don't realize that you've listened to the entire CD. Same thing with intellectual activities, reading. You ever pass your eyes over a page and read through the lines and then realize you've gotten to the end of the page and don't remember anything that you've read because you weren't paying attention? That's the faculty sort of disengaging itself. So he says, it's for the same reason some things please us when new, but cease to give so much pleasure later. This is because at first the mind is stimulated and acts vigorously in regard to the object, as in the case of sight when we look at something intently. But afterwards the activity is less vigorous 
cares and our attention relaxes and consequently the pleasure also fades. So the degree in which we're able to have pleasure depends in part on what's going on with these faculties and the activity that those faculties make possible for us. This is a very different look at pleasure than seeing pleasure as merely sort of stimulus response, a kind of passivity. This is a very actively oriented conception of pleasure. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.